Open your Bibles or navigate on your device to Mark chapter 8. Put in it verse 34. We're going to read through chapter 9, verse 1. Mark 8, 34 is our text. The topic, calling upon us to follow him as his disciples, Jesus praises the practice of denying ourselves. The title of our message, Applaudable Deniability. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you and praise you and bless you for the health and strength that you've given each of us in measure, Lord, to be here this morning. Some of us feel better or worse than others, I'm sure. There's a lot going on in all of our lives, some of it good uh, in, the, in a category we would call good, some of it in a category we would probably say is not so good. But we do believe that all things work together for the good because we love you and are called according to your purposes. And so I pray that today if there's any cloudiness that you would make things clear, not just in this text, but in our lives as followers. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. Do you have a song, one that if it comes on the radio, you say, that's our song? Entertainers often have a song that was written just for them. Frank Sinatra, for example, had My Way. Originally a French pop tune, Paul Anka took the melody and wrote English words, especially for Sinatra. The lyrics celebrate the independent spirit of the man nicknamed the chairman of the board. The song builds to this conclusion, for what is a man, what has he got? If not himself, then he has not to say the things he truly feels and not the words of one who kneels, the record shows I took the blows and did it my way. In another stanza, the lyrics anticipate Sinatra's defiant thoughts about his death. And now the end is near and so I face the final curtain. My friend, I'll say it clear, I'll state my case of which I'm certain. I've lived a life that's full, I traveled each and every highway and more, much more than this, I did it my way. Now think about that in the clear light of what you know about eternity. Is that the song you want to sing to Jesus on the other side of the final curtain? I did it my way? No, you're gonna wanna be able to sing something like this. I have decided to follow Jesus. Though none go with me, still I will follow. My cross I'll carry till I see Jesus. The world behind me, the cross before me. No turning back, no turning back. Those lyrics, by the way, are based on the last words of a man in Northeast India who, along with his family, was converted to Christianity in the middle of the 19th century through the efforts of a Welsh missionary. Called to renounce his faith by the village chief, the convert declared, I have decided to follow Jesus. In response to threats to his family, he continued, though no one joins me, still I will follow. His wife was killed, then he was executed while singing the cross before me, the world behind me. His display of faith is reported to have led to the conversion of the chief and many others in that village. I'm not sure if the anonymous martyr was thinking about the words of Jesus in our text, but both his words and his witness give perfect expression to everything the Lord intended when he said, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself take up his cross, and follow me. Now, don't immediately focus on martyrdom and be put off from following the Lord. Start by considering the invitation, whosoever desires to come after me. I do, and so do you, if you're a believer. And since we desire to come after Jesus, we're gonna wanna pay close attention as he discusses the price, but also the profit of discipleship. 
I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, Jesus discloses the price of following him as his disciple. And number two, Jesus defends the profits of following him as his disciple. Let's talk about the price first and the bedrock principle in verse 34. Now we can liken Jesus' words, I think, to the terms and conditions dialog box that pops up on your computer or your mobile device when you first load a program or app. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Terms and conditions pop up. If you want to start enjoying the app, you can't do anything until you click agree. Now, have you ever actually read the terms and conditions? I doubt it because they're 50 pages long. And in one sense, it really doesn't matter what they say because if you want to use the app, you're going to have to click on agree at the end anyway. And so you, you just kind of, I wonder how much you are forfeiting that you have no idea what you're agreeing to, and yet we routinely do that. If you, the, I don't want to get off on a tangent here, but privacy is an illusion. Uh, there's no such thing as privacy anymore. Believe what you may. Anyway, the discipleship pop-up dialogue box, verse 34, when he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself take up his cross, and follow me. As I said, this is the bedrock principle for discipleship as laid down by Jesus. The remaining verses of chapter eight and verse one of chapter nine justify the high cost of discipleship. A couple of preliminary observations before we get into it. Jesus' disciples were the 12. They had been with him quite some time as his disciples, yet here Jesus was calling even them, his disciples, to discipleship. And then the call to discipleship was also made to other people, to whoever was in that crowd. Most of them must have been non-believers whom Jesus was calling to salvation and simultaneously to discipleship. What this tells me is that we should urge folks to count the cost when they first get saved, but that it is also normal to urge those who are long-term believers to further discipleship. Maybe when you got saved, the preacher cautioned you to count the cost and you understood from the get-go you had to be all in for Jesus, and you've never wavered, not for a moment, from his lordship over your life. I suppose that's possible. It's more likely that you committed your life to the Lord but had very little idea what that meant and have had times in your walk where you have recommitted your life or rededicated your life to the Lord. I think the most common experience we have is summed up by the phrase, every disciple is a Christian but not every Christian is a disciple. I think, in fact, that a lot of Christians are not growing with the Lord because at some point, terms and conditions popped up on the screen of their life and they didn't click agree. It left them stuck, unable to move further, unable to move forward. Do you feel stuck? Today could be a turning point in your relationship with the Lord as he maybe reveals to you what it is you are disagreeing with that he uh, wants you to agree with. Now bear in mind that Jesus had just told his guys in verse 31 that he must, and I quote, suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, be killed, and after three days, rise again. That's where he was going. He was going to the cross, then to the tomb, then out from the tomb. When he said, 
whoever desires to come after me, it wasn't a generic invitation to just walk with the Lord, to start having a relationship with the Lord. It was a specific invitation to walk his path, which was to the cross, to the tomb, and then out from the tomb. The disciples and the people were expecting Jesus to walk into Jerusalem and proclaim himself king and establish the kingdom of heaven on the earth. They kept thinking that no matter how much Jesus is going to tell them, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. They keep wondering when the kingdom is going to be established, what their positions are. Even after his resurrection from the dead, as he's going to the Mount of Ascension, they're wondering if now is when the kingdom is going to come. And so that was the expectation. When he said that, it was a generic invitation to walk with him not into the kingdom, The disciples and the people were excited to come after Jesus along that path, but his destination had changed on account of the rejection of the national leaders of Israel. There was a new path, the one that led to death and beyond. To follow Jesus along that path meant they would need to deny themselves and that they would need to take up their crosses. And so this is a a big, big moment in the life of these disciples and in the crowd. Because Jesus says, in effect, in plain language, he says, I'm not going to Jerusalem to be the king. I'm going to Jerusalem to be killed. And if you want to follow me, that's where the path leads. Now, we happen to be in the Lent season of the Roman Catholic Church. Their doctrine encourages you to give up something for the time period, denying yourself its pleasures as a token of your devotion to Jesus Christ. I always used to give up something I didn't like anyway. It was kind of a cheat, but um, nobody seemed to care. So you give up something, supposedly denying yourself. That is not what deny yourself means, not at all. And it isn't something that has a time limit. It's continuous. You don't just give something up for Lent. You don't deny yourself for Lent and then go back to living for yourself after that. To deny yourself means you deny self. You no longer consider yourself independent of God's rule over your life, but you consider yourself as belonging to him to do with you as he pleases, not as you please. It means you give total control of your life to Jesus Christ. Do you remember those bumper stickers that read, Jesus is my co-pilot? I'm guessing none of you have that on your car. It's an older one. You should tear it off if you do. He's not your co-pilot. He is your pilot. Get in the back seat, but don't be a back seat driver. Let Jesus drive, you enjoy life from the back seat. Speaking of the back seat, what do you think of driverless cars? You know, Google has a self-driving car piloted by software called Google Chauffeur. Lettering on the side of each car identifies it as a self-driving car. Google plans to make these cars available to the public by the year 2020. So you might be able to go and just sit in the back seat. I wonder what kind of backseat driver you're gonna be in a self-driving car. The car isn't really driverless, of course. It's driven by something much more intelligent than you are with far better reaction time. Jesus is like that, only to infinity with no possibility for failure or malfunction. It's just so hard for some of us to sing, Jesus, take the wheel. We just can't do it. We, we have to keep one hand on the steering wheel. Or we like Jesus to drive with his knees and we keep leaning over. You know how you do that? Hey, take the wheel. I've got to answer my phone. 
Who's at the wheel of your life? If it's Jesus, is he only there to steer you successfully through some danger or some crisis after which you plan on driving in? That's, that's kind of a typical kind of reaction that we have. We don't really realize, we're just, our life is going along, we're making our choices, making our decisions, we're not really involving the Lord all that much. Then the crisis comes, it's like, hey, take it. Drive me through this. I'll never get through these obstacles without you. And then once you get on the other side of it, say, hey, thank you so much, now I've got it from here. Uh, that, that's the thinking that we're at after today. We wanna get rid of that. Now we have the example of the 12, so let's use it. They thought they were on their way to positions in the kingdom. Instead, if they chose it, they would be on their way to persecutions and martyrdom. And so this, was, this is a very serious moment. And Jesus says, look, guys, you've been following me. You other people, you wanna follow me? Here's the deal. I'm going to the cross and that's where you will be going too if you choose to follow me. One of them said no to discipleship. Judas betrayed the Lord. He sold him out for 30 pieces of silver. He preferred this world and the things of this world to the cross. The rest of the boys said yes, and they denied themselves. They were, you know, you know their stories. They were reviled, they were beaten, they were imprisoned, they were eventually martyred, all of them but John, who was exiled to hard labor on Patmos in his 90s. Do we pity the disciples? Do any of us think that they somehow wasted their lives? Or are we grateful for their decision to deny self for Jesus and the gospel? Take up your cross, Jesus said next. Now we've cheapened what he meant by talking about certain sufferings or burdens as our cross to bear. That's a, an idiom that has gotten into our culture where we say, well, I've got this disease or this situation, that's my cross to bear. I've known a lot of wives who say their husband is their cross to bear. I have to admit that he's wooden uh, in his thinking, but that's not what Jesus has in mind. This isn't what those words mean. In first century Israel, execution of heinous non-Roman criminals was by crucifixion. The condemned man would be compelled to carry part of the cross upon which he was going to be crucified. Jesus was gonna be crucified, you know the story, and he bear, uh, bore part of his cross outside the city to the place of the skull. And so this is the image. When Jesus says, you pick up your cross or bear your cross, they would immediately think of a condemned criminal carrying part of the cross on the way to execution. Uh, the immediate meaning to the disciples and to the people listening was that they too were most likely going to be killed should they choose to follow Jesus. This is a big counting the cost kind of a thing. And, and we're not familiar too much with this here in the United States and uh, so much in the Western world, but there's, still, there's always been places in the world, and there are today, where the decision to follow Christ is a decision to die. When you say, yeah, I'm, I, I'm gonna follow Jesus, and then somebody else says, then we're going to kill you. And we get more and more news of that all the time. And so this is what Jesus was offering his disciples. For multiplied millions of believers throughout the church age, it has meant just that, martyrdom for the sake of Jesus and the gospel. There are many accounts in Fox's Book of Martyrs, for example, of people being converted as a saint was being martyred, and then they immediately joined that saint and were themselves martyred. 
Short of actual martyrdom, bearing your cross means not just that you are willing to die for Jesus if it comes to it, but that you daily consider yourself a dead man or a dead woman. Uh, There's some advantages to approaching life as a dead person. Nothing can hurt you if you're dead. You don't have any worries or anxieties about life if you're dead. And you won't be controlled by your fleshly appetites either. And so the idea of going through life thinking of yourself as a dead person, it actually has its advantage. Is all this depressing you? It shouldn't. Again, I appeal to the believers who have gone before us. The apostle Paul, right after he was saved on the road to Damascus, was told how many things he must suffer for Jesus Christ and for the gospel. And then I've read before many times, and so have you, lists in the Bible of his sufferings. They make you cringe. You think, how could one man endure those kinds of punishments without just throwing in the towel? Yet he said of all his sufferings, both physical and emotional, that they were light afflictions that lasted for just a moment compared to eternity. And we are certainly grateful for Paul's choosing to deny self and bear the cross. You might be thinking, if those are the terms and conditions, there's no way I'm clicking on agree. Uh, That's a little bit too serious for me. Well, if that's my choice and your choice, then it's why we will never grow any farther. A suffering savior requires suffering saints. That's the era in which we live. If you're leaning towards disagreeing, don't decide yet. Jesus wants to explain a few things to you about why his terms and conditions are really quite extraordinary. And that's the point of the next few verses. He defends the prophets of following him as his disciple. As we get to the end of these verses, you'll see there's really no choice. The only real choice is to follow Jesus. Now, if you're at all inclined to maintain your status quo as a Christian who is not a disciple or to remain a non-believer, give careful consideration to five things Jesus points out in these verses. The first thing to ponder, verse 35, whoever desires to save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Jesus was addressing both believers and non-believers. Uh, you remember that. He's talking to his disciples and to a bunch of other people, and there's no way that all of those people were followers of Christ, uh, so he's talking to believers and non-believers. His words must, therefore, have impact on all who hear them. Let's say you're not a believer, You're by no means a Christian. After counting the cost of following Jesus, you don't want to lose your life for him. You'd rather live the life you have to the fullest. You'd rather pilot your own car, so to speak. You you, you know, uh, all this talk about the cross and about death and living as a dead person and all that, it, it just doesn't seem all that appealing. And so you think, I, my life isn't so bad. I know you're telling me I'm a sinner, My life's not all that bad. Maybe if I was in India or someplace like that, I would need Christianity, but I'm just gonna try things on my own and live for myself. Well, you can do that, but it's at the peril of losing eternal life and perishing in a place of eternal conscious torment. Jesus is saying that if you save your self-life, you lose eternal life. It's a terrible decision. Yes, the Lord is making serious demands upon your life, but in the long run, 
it, it's obviously your best choice to follow him. And so when you sit there and you, a non-believer says, yeah, I, thank you for telling me the true cost of discipleship. I don't wanna have anything to do with it. Wait a minute, don't you understand that the alternative is that you will perish eternally and be in a place of eternal conscious torment? Yes, there is suffering now, but, but you will reign later or you can have a relatively easy life now, I guess, and suffer later forever. And so the, it's not much of a choice when you put it that way. You'd have to be pretty stupid to turn down the gospel and say, no, I would rather go to hell and suffer forever because right now my life is so enjoyable. I can do whatever I want, whenever I want. Truth is, the non-believer doesn't have an enjoyable life. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But So that's what Jesus says right out the gate. He says, yeah, I'm making a serious demand on your life, but it's because your life is a serious thing. It's gonna go on forever. And this is how it can go on forever in eternity. How would this same verse apply to a believer? Well, if you live for self, you'll certainly be forfeiting rewards when you see the Lord. You will, in fact, suffer loss at the reward seat of Christ. Now, don't shrug that off lightly. Sometimes people, you know, we bring that up and you say, well, that's nothing. Really? You're talking about looking into the beautiful but probing eyes of the Lord who bought you at the cost of his own death on the cross, the one who has a plan for your life to complete the good work he has begun in you? Do you really wanna be flippant about discipleship and disappoint the Lord? Is that the account that you want to give to him? If you don't think it's a serious thing for a believer after death or after the rapture to stand before Jesus Christ and give an account of his life and his discipleship and suffer loss. Paul talks about how things will be burned up and burned away. Uh, well, then you haven't thought about that very much. And so I believe this is how these verses apply to the believer. Jesus presents a second argument in verse 36. He says, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? The non-believer who rejects Jesus or the believer who wants to refuse discipleship is choosing earthly things over eternal things. The Lord puts that choice into perspective. He exaggerates for the sake of argument and assumes that you could gain the whole world. So we look at guys like, I don't know, Bill Gates or you know, whoever, these rich people, and the, you know, the richest people in the world and all their multiplied millions and billions of dollars. But Jesus goes beyond that and he says, if you could have the entire world, you're all these guys and all the wealth and all the, it's, it's yours, you, the world is yours. He says it, it, it still has, it pales in comparison to the worth of your soul. So think about it. The world is temporary and is one day going to be destroyed. There'll be a new earth and new heavens. Thus, the world you gain cannot be compared to the soul you lose in the process. Jesus is so straightforward here. He is so matter of fact. He goes, go ahead, gain the whole world. You know that's gonna all be destroyed. And what's gonna be left is your soul. Where's that going to be? What does loses his own soul mean? Does it mean forfeiting salvation? Well, yes, it does to a non-believer. Your pursuit of satisfaction with the earthly will overshadow the eternal and you'll be lost forever. If you're a believer, can you lose your soul? Well, yes, but I think in a different sense. You lose it in that you'll never be satisfied with the world. It will eventually hit you that you are falling short of the high calling God has for your life. 
we can confidently say that the world can never satisfy the believer because we have the testimony of a guy who in effect gained the whole world. His name was Solomon. He was the son of David. He was Israel's third king. He had it all in every earthly pursuit you can imagine. He drinks, he becomes wealthy, he acquires power, he buys property, experiences sexual gratification, he views artistic entertainment. Read the book of Ecclesiastes. None of what the world has to offer was kept from him. He experienced it all in its fullness, but none of those experiences could satisfy him. In the end, he declared it all to be vanity and he realized the only true satisfaction in life comes from your submission to God. I don't know, you know, people look at that and they think, well, you know, I'd still like to try it. <laughs> you know, people say, well, being rich, you know, it's, it's not all that it's cracked up to be. And you think, I'd like to try it for a while. And, and, but you know what would happen if you tried it? If you tried any of the things that Solomon did to find satisfaction? you would be dissatisfied if you're a believer. Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 3.11, I love these words, he, that is God, has put eternity in their hearts except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. In today's language, we would say people are born hardwired to know there is eternal life. And therefore, you can never be satisfied with earthly living because you were made for eternity. This is one of the great C.S. Lewis quotes. If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And you know that's true. All of us, especially after we become Christians, realize that we have a longing and a desire for something that nothing in this world could satisfy no emotional pleasure, no physical pleasure, no material pleasure. It's a relationship with God through Jesus Christ because our soul has value in that relationship. Now the third argument for following Jesus, verse 37, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? MasterCard hit gold with their ad campaign about things that are priceless. It's been around for a long time. People have parodied it, but it, it, it resonates with us because deep inside, we know that intangible spiritual things always take priority over mere material things. And so you know the ads. You know, they talk about the cost of certain things, you know, baseball jersey, baseball game or something, but, but going to the game with your grandchild, priceless, you know, because the, there's something about the, the memory, there's something about the intangible that we all know and sense is greater than the material. The saving and the satisfying of your soul are two profitable results of your decision to follow Jesus. It may seem as though his demands upon your life are extreme, but in the long run, you cannot put a price on submitting to Jesus. The fourth thing Jesus wants us to consider is in verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now, before we talk about the profit of discipleship from this verse, stop and realize Jesus just said something amazing. He's almost getting ahead of himself in terms of revealing things to the disciples. 
He referenced his second coming, his return to the earth to judge the world and to establish the promised kingdom. These guys are waiting for him to establish the kingdom and the Lord jumps past that and he's talking about his second coming. Now we know exactly what Jesus was describing because we've read the Bible. He'd be crucified, but then he'd rise from the dead. He'd ascend into heaven, but he would return and will return in his second coming. That coming would be preceded and will be preceded by a time of great trouble on the earth. It's prophesied in the Old Testament. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble, among other things. We know it as the seven-year great tribulation. And then there is the delay between the ascension of Jesus into heaven and his second coming. We live in that delay in the church age. And so when Jesus says uh, that he's coming in the glory of his father with his holy angels, he's giving a summary of future prophecy that these guys were not yet aware of, but that you and I rattle off all the time because we have read the rest of the New Testament and the book of the Revelation and we know what Jesus is talking about. As to discipleship and the choice to deny self and bear the cross, when Jesus returns, there's gonna be a reckoning. Everyone will give an account to him. For church age saints, this account is gonna be given at the reward seat of Jesus after our death or the rapture. For the people who must endure the future tribulation, this account will be on the earth at his second coming. It's when Jesus divides people, sheep and goats, the goats are non-believers uh, who are sent to a place of torment and punishment while those who are believers go in and populate the kingdom. Now, the argument here is simple. If you refuse discipleship, you avoid any possibility of reviling or ridicule for being a follower of Jesus Christ. You'll fit in with the rest of the world. You'll avoid any trouble or suffering for the sake of the gospel. And so all you have to do is remain a non-believer or as a believer, hide your witness. Don't talk about Jesus. Don't let anybody know you're a Christian. Don't go to church. Don't you know, do any of those things. And then no one will ever revile you for being a Christian. No one will ever make fun of you. No one will ever pass you over for promotion. Uh, no one will ever persecute you. And, and you will you know, have a relatively easy life in terms of the gospel. But that means you are ashamed to be identified with Jesus Christ and with his saints. I don't, I don't want that reviling. I don't want that rebuking. I don't want to be passed over for promotion. I don't want the persecution. But that all means I'm ashamed to identify with Jesus Christ who endured those things for me and his followers who endured those things as well. Thus, when Jesus comes, he says, I'm going to have to be ashamed of you because you decided to live that way and that will cause me to be ashamed of you. And what Jesus is saying is that it's one way or the other. You can't have it both ways. Jesus can't be all excited about you when he returns if you've been ashamed of him during your life. Now, the fifth and final argument Jesus puts forth for choosing discipleship is the first verse of chapter nine. And he said to them, assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. 
Now, the literal fulfillment of this prediction is gonna be explained in the verses that follow in chapter nine. Jesus will take three of the guys with him up a mountain. He'll be transfigured before their eyes. The veil that hid his deity from them will be temporarily lifted and he will shine like the sun. And they get a preview, a, uh, you know, a coming attraction of the kingdom. Jesus said this, however, before he was transfigured as part of his arguments that discipleship is the only profitable choice. By the way, I'm sure you know that when the books of the Bible were originally written, they did not contain chapter or verse references. The Bible was divided into chapters and verses to help us find scriptures more quickly and easily. So they, the chapter, verse uh, designations in your Bible are not inspired. They were added by human beings to make things easier. It's easier to say John 3.16 than to say God so loved the world. Uh, so on Sunday mornings when I get up and I, if we were studying the Gospel of John, I would say, John 3, Chuck Smith used to do this. If you went on Sunday nights and you were a visitor, you had no idea where he was in his through the Bible, he would just start talking from the Bible without giving you the verse reference. And you felt like a moron if he was in 2 Kings because you, what is he, you know, where is he? I don't know, where do you think he is? And uh, so, so, so we came along and we added these. The chapter divisions commonly used today were developed by Stephen Langton. He was an Archbishop of Canterbury. Langton put the modern chapter divisions into place around 1227 AD. The Wycliffe English Bible of 1382 was the first Bible to use chapters. Since the Wycliffe Bible, nearly all Bible translations have followed Langston's chapter divisions. The Hebrew scriptures that we call the Old Testament were divided into verses by a Jewish rabbi by the name of Nathan in 1448 AD. Robert Estienne, also known as Stephanus, was the first to divide the New Testament into standard number verses in 1555. Stephanus used Nathan's verse divisions for the Old Testament. And since that time, beginning with the Geneva Bible, chapter and verse divisions employed by Stephanus have been accepted into nearly all Bible versions. And so just know that. So that's why when you say, well, why is he going into chapter nine? There really is no chapter nine. It's just the next verse. And it has more to do with what we're talking about today than it does what we'll talk about next time. So what does it say about discipleship, verse one? Well, walking with Jesus doesn't just mean a life of death and crosses. It means a life of power and victory. He would bear his cross and be crucified, but he would rise from the dead, ascend into heaven, and be seated at the right hand of God. There was glory in the end. It's not revealed here, but we know from other gospels and from the book of Acts, Jesus promised to send the Holy Spirit upon his followers. The power of his resurrection is available to any and all of his followers. We are described as already seated, spiritually speaking, in heaven with Jesus. If you're listening to all this or reading it and thinking, I can't do any of that, the answer is, of course you can't. You have to have the Holy Spirit indwelling you and then you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. We should look at the present in light of the certainty of these future events. Jesus is talking about the future, living for the future, looking back on the present from a future point of view, and that's what we should do. You know, it's a common plot point in a lot of sci-fi stories that the person from the future bets on sporting events that he already knows the outcome of. 
And we wish we could do that, know the future. Not simply to become wealthy betting on it, but to change it for the better. Don't you wish you could go back in time and change certain things like your whole life? But uh, I mean, how many science fiction shows are like that? There's a, dozens of them that try and stop the Kennedy assassination, and they always fail. But uh, you know, they, they, and you you know things about the f- the future because you were there, and it gives you an advantage in the past. We do know the future, at least in outline form, and we can change it for the better. We can change it for the better of individuals with whom we share the gospel, and that they will not perish but have everlasting life. Think about that. You know the future of every human being. Not the exact, not their next job or whether this is gonna happen or that's gonna happen, but you know something better. You know that they are either gonna spend eternity in heaven or an eternity in eternal conscious torment. And you have words that can help them make that choice. Powerful words that will free their will to receive Christ as their savior and guarantee them a better future. We can change the future for the better of nations as we call upon their citizens to repent and seek a righteousness that exalts nations. Everybody, I'm I'm not gonna get into this, but everybody's, you know, it's an election year. We live in a great country, the greatest, maybe the greatest country ever after Italy. No, I don't know. The Italians, they don't know what's going on except for coffee. But uh, anyway, anybody who could give you Mussolini, how great is that, right? And a tower that leans. But um, what was I talking about? Righteousness. Uh, Just whenever you talk about what's happening politically and who we're faced with and all this, just remember the phrase, righteousness exalts a nation. And that will hopefully help you in making some serious choices about who to support and who to vote for. Righteousness exalts a nation. We need national repentance if we're going to survive uh, the next little while as a nation. And it concerns me that the United States really is not mentioned in Bible prophecy. Something's going to happen. I personally think it's the rapture of the church which will devastate the United States and leave us pretty helpless on the world scene. But it could be something different and worse. Righteousness exalts a nation. And we uh, can affect that. You know, uh, Franklin Graham, right now, doing what he can, he's going in a bus to every state capital in the United States, rallying Christians to get out and vote. And he's doing that because he believes righteousness exalts a nation and that we as God's righteous individuals ought to uh, exercise our rights. And then finally, we can change the future in that in a way we don't fully understand, our living as disciples can actually hasten or speed up the coming of the Lord. That's what Peter says in his second letter. He says, living for Christ, you hasten the return of Jesus Christ. And so there's a lot that we can do to affect the future. I'll close with this. Imagine every morning as you wake up, your first order of business after making coffee is to get into God's word, okay? As you open your Bible to read, every time this dialogue box pops up, 
Whosoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. It's up to you to click cancel or agree every day of your life. Regardless what your theory or philosophy or doctrine of discipleship is, maybe you disagree with some of the things I said this morning about you know, discipleship, this is a great illustration. Every day, out of bed, with my Bible if possible, and Jesus is saying, do you agree with this or not? Because today might be the day that you die for me. But if it's not, you're gonna live as a dead person anyway, denying self and bearing your cross to affect the future of human beings so that people will get saved, so that my son will be sent sooner and so that nations can turn in repentance. And so that's why uh, we can't despair about Jesus calling us to discipleship because it's so extraordinary, the result of it.